Spring 1865 was one of the most pivotal seasons in American history. The Confederate Army surrendered, Jefferson Davis was captured, and there were so many questions about how this country would move forward. How do you reunite a country that's been torn apart by war? How do you define citizenship? Were citizens of former Confederate states immediately citizens of the Union again? Were emancipated slaves now American citizens? There were four million black people in America in 1865, and more than three million had been enslaved. Yet the initial debate over how to reunite the country moved forward between white Northerners and Southerners and left black people out of the conversation. By 1866, sessions in the South, known as colored men conventions, saw black men gathering in churches to organize and work with white Northerners to demand white Southerners engage in conversation about defining citizenship. Black people demanded it, and white Northerners agreed that the only way the country could be reunited and begin the long road to reunification was citizenship and an acknowledgement of rights for black people. It would take four more years for that demand to even begin to be met. And even then, there was compromise. With the ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870, black men became American citizens with the right to vote. But loopholes would suppress that right. In the months and years following the Civil War, Emancipated slaves felt unrest and fear. They knew the road to freedom would not be a simple one. And white Southerners had made it clear, black people were not people they believed to be worthy of freedom. They had been willing to fight a war to suppress that right. Many former slaves had to remain on the plantation where they had been enslaved because they had no hope of finding paid work if they left that land. They were legally free, but caught in between the system that had enslaved them and the politicians who were fighting over whether they had rights and citizenship. That uncertainty, combined with a generations-long dream, led a group of emancipated slaves to leave a Mississippi plantation and move to the Green River Township near the North and South Carolina border where they established an African tribal village with customs and rituals, a place they could call home. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard, and this is the story of the Kingdom of the Happy Land. The kingdom of the Happy Lands has faded with time. Residents have moved away. Old cabins and buildings that were on the land in the late 19th century and early 20th century have long since been torn down or overtaken by nature and time. We know the kingdom was established near the present-day town of Tuxedo, North Carolina, in Henderson County. The Green River community that this group called home extended from the state line of South Carolina on up to Flat Rock, an area south of Asheville, North Carolina. As historical society researchers in Henderson County note, 
Green Rivers, mountain peaks, fertile valleys, mountain streams, and waterfalls drew many wandering souls to this land. All of the communities of the Green River are built on what was once Cherokee land, just east of the Continental Divide. Treaties with the Cherokee opened the area for settlement between 1767 and 1777. As decades passed, more and more settlers and explorers traveled the path that wound through Green River and on up to Flat Rock. By 1867, a group of emancipated slaves would near the end of a long journey from the Deep South, passing through the winding stairs near where Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina intersect, and they found their promised land in Green River. The men who became leaders of this group were brothers, Robert and William Montgomery. We know more about Robert because he would become the longest ruling king of the kingdom of the Happy Land. Robert Montgomery was born in the Deep South, most likely Mississippi, and he was the son of a white plantation owner and an enslaved woman who was freed just before Robert was born. He was able to pass as a white man which afforded him opportunities and ease of movement that enslaved and free black men rarely had during this era. One of the most important things he said he had access to was education. Robert and his brother William were close and they were close to their mother who told them stories of what life was like in their motherland before she and the family were taken from their home in Africa. Following emancipation, the brothers were inspired to turn the dream of a kingdom in America into reality. After the Civil War, the country was changing, but emancipated men and women did not yet have that freedom they needed to carve out a life that was completely their own. The challenge was figuring out what life would look like and where you would go as a newly freed black person. Robert and William Montgomery knew that their vision of a kingdom could not become a reality in Mississippi. White people were not acknowledging their freedom and they legally had no rights. Depending on their financial situation after the war, plantation and business owners in the Deep South states could not afford or refuse to pay the men and women who had been enslaved on their properties and were now emancipated. Many of the plantations had been destroyed, damaged, and the owners had fled or died during the war. This led the Montgomery brothers to journey out of the Deep South, along with a small group who traveled together to remain safe along the way. We don't know the exact route they traveled, but it's estimated the group began with about 50 people. And as they moved through Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and into the Carolinas, folks began joining their group. They traveled together and waited for a sign and a feeling of where they should end the journey and settle down. They traveled light. All they owned were the clothes on their back and what little food they were able to find along the way, which meant they depended on the kindness of strangers. The ultimate act of kindness and unexpected opportunity 
would be found as the group traveled through the winding stairs trail, up into the mountains, and arrived in the Green River community. Here, they came across some old slave cabins and met the widow of a plantation owner, Mrs. Sarepta Merritt Davis. Sarepta Merritt was born in Greenville, South Carolina. In 1823, she met Colonel John Davis, a Virginian who had served under General Andrew Jackson in the War of 1812. Following the Battle of New Orleans, Davis moved to frontier country in the foothills of South Carolina, where he established a trading post. By the end of 1823, Davis had married Sarepta Merritt. The couple moved to Flat Rock, where they established a new trading post. A few years passed, and Colonel Davis sold that land. He and his wife moved down the mountain to the Green River community. Davis purchased 900 acres of land and built a large home just north of the North Carolina state line. Here, Sarepta and John Davis would raise 10 children in the home they called Oakland to honor the large oaks surrounding the property. Colonel John Davis became an influential figure in Green River and the surrounding communities. He had been a master sergeant when he served in the War of 1812, but his new neighbors took to calling him Colonel, and the nickname just sort of stuck for the rest of his life. John and Sarepta opened an inn and stagecoach stop at Oakland, which would become a vital rest stop for weary travelers. The Davises were always willing to offer food and shelter to neighbors and strangers. Anyone in need knew they would find help at Oakland. So much so that Sadie Patton, who wrote about the home and the history of Green River in 1957, came across records describing Oakland's dining room table as a table that groaned with its loads of good things to eat. The Davises would also be unintentional host of a significant event in the history of the Carolinas. Despite duels being outlawed in North Carolina in 1802, Oakland was the site of the Vance Carson duel of 1827. On November 5th, Robert Vance and Samuel Carson faced each other to duel on the grounds of Oakland. Robert Vance was a doctor turned politician. The congressman was the brother of North Carolina Governor Zebulon Vance. Samuel Carson was a farmer who felt called to politics. In 1825, Carson and Vance competed for a seat in the 19th Congress. Carson defeated Vance, who vowed to himself he would one day return to Congress. In 1827, Robert Vance and Samuel Carson would again compete against each other for a congressional seat. The campaign, it was dirty and fierce. Robert Vance made some rather crude remarks about Carson and his family, calling them cowards when he made a speech in their hometown of Marion. The low blows didn't work, and Samuel Carson won re-election. After that win was confirmed, Carson sought an apology from Vance for the attack on his family and their honor. Vance refused, and Carson challenged him to a duel that was accepted. Vance and Carson met on the grounds of Oakland, right on the North and South Carolina border, 
to honor the outlawing of duels in North Carolina. One of the witnesses was frontiersman Davy Crockett. Robert Vance never fired his gun, but Samuel Carson did. He hit Vance in the hip. A fatally wounded Robert Vance was carried to Oakland, where he died the next day. Along with a controversial duel and its association with Oakland, Colonel John Davis and his wife Sarepta were operating a plantation inn, which meant the Davises owned slaves. There were slave cabins on the grounds, which means the primary upkeep of the plantation fell on the backs of the men, women, and children who were forced to work that land. When Colonel John Davis died in 1859, Sarepta Davis inherited Oakland, and along with her son Tom, the widow was now responsible for the house and 200 acres of land. That responsibility for the inheritance would become difficult as the Civil War began in 1861. As the war continued, some Oakland slaves left, and by the end of the war, all of the slaves were gone. Oakland was idle, and most of the Davis's possessions had been stolen by marauders, and their livestock had been taken by Union and Confederate troops. An aging Sarepta Davis was struggling to survive. She and her son earned what little money they could by opening up rooms in the home for travelers willing to pay to stay in a run-down Oakland as they passed through Green River. You can imagine Sarepta's surprise when a group of emancipated slaves from the Deep South appeared on her property, and the men who were entrusted to speak for the group, brothers Robert and William Montgomery, knocked on her door. The men explained where they had come from, how they had heard of a road that would take them to a beautiful area that could be their promised land. Sarepta Davis was kind, and she and her son welcomed the Montgomerys and their fellow travelers. She extended the hospitality she had always been known for, offering to share what little food she had with the group who were weary from their long journey. It was clear to the Montgomery brothers that Sarepta Davis was financially struggling, and they were smart men and quickly offered to make a deal with Sarepta and her son, Tom. There were those old slave cabins on the Oakland plantation, cabins that were empty and could offer shelter and a new start for their group. The house and the land needed a lot of work. William and Robert Montgomery asked the widow and her son if their group could help the widow and the family with odd jobs around the property in exchange for shelter. Sarepta Davis agreed, and the group moved in to the Oakland cabins. We don't know exactly how many people were a part of the group that put down roots at Oakland. We do know that little by little, as word spread about Montgomery's deal with Sarepta, more people were drawn to what was being called Happy Land. The Montgomery's and the new settlers set about repairing Oakland and returning it to its status as a respected inn. The repairs helped 
and more people began staying at Oakland during the summer and fall months. The Happy Land residents also helped with the gardens, and once Sarepta was able to buy some livestock, they milked cows and churned butter. Their labor and investment in Oakland helped bring it back to life. The agreement the Montgomery's made with Sarepta was ideal for the group because it allowed them to find work in the surrounding community as they rotated labor at Oakland. Each new job meant they were able to make and save a little money, and that money helped them fulfill their dream for a kingdom. Within a few years, the group pooled their money and purchased an estimated 180 acres from Sarepta Davis for $1 an acre. The land they worked for and purchased became the foundation for their new community, where they built cabins and set about establishing the kingdom of the happy land. It was a socialistic society where every crop and every dollar earned was equally distributed among its inhabitants who were governed by a king and queen. The first to rule happy land was King William Montgomery and his wife, Queen Luella. Together, they established an African tribal village with customs and rituals in the Green River. William and Luella had adjoining cabins, and in each cabin, you would find their throne. Those royal cabins were built right on the state line. William's cabin in North Carolina and Luella's in South Carolina. The cabins were said to be intentionally constructed in different states as a sort of failsafe to preserve the kingdom. If any threat to their livelihood arose in one state, they could easily move to the other. Those who were a part of establishing the kingdom with William and Luella knew their survival depended on everyone agreeing to the all-for-one and one-for-all model. When someone made money, they would hand it over to King William to deposit into the community treasury. He made the call on distributing that money, from funding construction of barns and cabins to buying more land to ensure they had room to grow. William Montgomery passed away in the early 1870s, and Robert Montgomery succeeded him as king, alongside his sister-in-law, Queen Luella. They're credited with leading the movement that enabled the Kingdom of the Happy Land to survive for decades. The kingdom was always a simple place. Everyone worked hard to build cabins and clear the land that would be worked for generations. They grew corn, potatoes, and grains, and the much-needed corn cribs for storing and protecting their harvest from mold and the elements. Their community was self-sustaining. Their crops and livestock ensured they had food on the table and their clothing was made from materials they wove and dyed. Residents also worked together to produce a happy land liniment from wild and cultivated herbs. The liniment was sold as a pain reliever for those suffering from rheumatism. Now, the liniment sold well, but the majority of the income in the kingdom came from the thriving service industries associated with agriculture 
in 19th century Green River. Many of the men of Happy Land worked as Teamsters, which in the 1870s meant they drove teams of horses to transport produce up and down the old state road that linked South Carolina and the Western North Carolina mountains with coastal ports. At home, Queen Luella established a school for the children and the king's leadership helped the kingdom of the Happy Land prosper. They were always welcoming new community members. And an itinerant pastor helped spread the word about Happy Land. Reverend Ezell traveled throughout the Carolinas and would tell freedmen and their families about this community in Green River. Freedmen came from Kentucky and soon after groups from Georgia and South Carolina low country plantations arrived at the Kingdom of the Happy Land. It's estimated by 1872, the kingdom had grown from what's believed to be about 50 people who traveled from Mississippi to that promised land in the Carolinas into a population that exceeded 400 people. Which begs the question, how did this thriving, self-sustaining community of emancipated slaves go from a kingdom of hope and promise that was welcoming new residents every year to an area in Green River that's long since been overtaken by time. The beginning of the end for the Kingdom of the Happy Land was the railroad. The region that had relied on Teamsters, like the Happy Land's wagons, found there were faster and more efficient ways to transport goods. After the railroad began moving through the region in 1878, it would become harder and harder for members of the kingdom to find work. By the 1880s, King Robert Montgomery had passed away and Queen Luella would do everything in her power to help the kingdom survive. But slowly, as years passed, people had to relocate to find work, moving to Flat Rock or Hendersonville. With fewer Happy Land residents, it became harder to pay the taxes on the land. By 1900, most of the folks who had been a part of the Kingdom of the Happy Land had passed away or had moved away. The land was idle until 1910 when a farmer bought the property and within a decade, most of those Happy Land buildings had fallen apart or been dismantled. If you were to walk the area that was once the Happy Land, you'd see no visible signs of the history of this place. But the story of the Kingdom of the Happy Land has been preserved by historians who have interviewed descendants of those who lived and worked the land. And there are a few deeds that confirm the ownership of the land following the Civil War. It affirms the unexpected connection of a group of freedmen and a white woman on her plantation that was falling apart in the years after the war. They were asking themselves that critical question, how do we move forward? The Montgomery brothers and Sarepta Davis figured out a way to do that together with their agreement that proved beneficial to both parties. Sarepta was able to live out the rest of her life on Oakland, and the Kingdom of the Happy Land was a sort of Canaan for these men and women 
who had endured the brutality and horror of slavery. In 1855, Frederick Douglass wrote about Canaan and singing spirituals during his years of bondage. Douglass said, a keen observer might have detected in our repeated singing of, O Canaan, sweet Canaan, I am bound for the land of Canaan, something more than a hope of reaching heaven. We meant to reach the north, and the north was our Canaan. The kingdom of the Happy Land may not have been the north Frederick Douglass was referring to, but the Green River region beckoned these freedmen, and that area near the North and South Carolina line in 1867 was far enough north for their new beginning, and perhaps for a little while, their little piece of heaven on earth. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can learn more about this episode and find sources in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. And if you like this little independent podcast and want to hear more, you can help support what I'm creating when you join me on Patreon. Sarah from San Antonio is our newest member, and she joins our patrons who get to hear bonus Southern Mysteries shorts each month. It's my thanks to you for supporting the show. You can learn more and sign up today at patreon.com slash southern mysteries. And make sure you hit that follow and subscribe button wherever you're listening so you never miss a new episode. Thanks so much for listening. 